Welcome back to the book club. Today we are joined by author Claire Bartlett. Hello, Claire. Hello. Thank you for joining us. So Claire's written um, the Winter Duke, and you've also recently published the Good Girls. Yes. You know, in the Winter Duke, you have a beautifully described kingdom, but it's a kingdom of ice. I Why think. did you choose to set your story in a kingdom of ice? Um, so I love the cold and cold things. I think I miss it a little bit. Um, when I moved to Denmark, I definitely thought it would be colder. Scandinavia has a reputation, right? But Denmark's like the warm part of Scandinavia. <laughs> so it rarely snows. And Colorado, you know, we get a good amount of snow in the wintertime quite often. Uh, and I missed, I missed that a little bit. And um, I think part of it was also that I had toyed around for years with this idea of a kingdom above and a kingdom below the water. And of course, having a totally frozen layer on top of the lake was an easy way to make that happen as a double kingdom. But I just love the ice aesthetic. It's beautiful to me. Were there any particular challenges in writing about a kingdom of ice? Did you have to bear certain things in mind that you maybe would normally not have to consider for, you know, a book set in a normal climate, I guess? <laughs> yeah, definitely. Like, how do people stay warm, right? Like, I, uh, I did some research into ice hotels and things like that. Um, and things like, you know, in a kingdom of ice, uh, like a lot of vegetables and things like that are going to be imported because they're not going to grow very well. So what's like grows in that climate that like a vegetation that people can eat and how do like, how do they go back and forth? How do they ensure that people actually live in these climates? And of course it happens in, uh, in the real world. So I can look at how, um, like how, how it works in Greenland, for example, Finland, Russia, uh, like high up parts of Sweden. Um, but like trying to figure out how you would light a fire and not melt the whole palace was really like provided some fun questions for me. You've got the kingdom above and the kingdom below. Mm -hmm. While I was reading, the one question that keep popping in mind is why the kingdom below only exists in that part of your world i mean there must be water fish and deep sea in other places why was the why was this place the only connection yeah that's an interesting question um maybe it's not <laughs> uh so definitely it has something to do with the magic that has developed like for sure the both the society and i like in my head, the people of the kingdom below have a very close connection and like necessary connection to the magic and the way that it grows. Um, uh, there's also a little bit of mythology in there. Um, part of the mythology is that there was a, a god down below who wanted a few subjects of, their, of her own uh, when people came to the ice above and decided to settle down. So she brought... So she brought a few uh, a few settlers down to her underwater realm, and how true that is. Maybe I'll find out when I write another book. <laughs> um, reading the book also reminded me a little bit about like fairy tales, yeah, and like about like yeah. Snow White and Beauty and the Beast. You know, you have the roses. Oh, so, <laughs> was that is that where part of the inspiration came from? 
Yeah, like broadly speaking. Uh, so my publisher pitched it as Anastasia meets Sleeping Beauty. Um, but originally, I wanted to do like a 12 Dancing Princesses retelling. And that's how you get 12 siblings and everybody sort of falling under some kind of curse. And because I'm not really good at sticking to my script or keeping to an outline, pretty soon it didn't, it wasn't anything like the 12 Dancing Princesses at all. And it turned into something totally different. Um, but I love fairy tales and there's so much room to riff off of them. And uh, I was really pleased that people were calling it like a queer fairy tale of its own in a way. Um, I love the sort of language that often gets used and the sort of aesthetic that gets used in a lot of fairy tales. When we, you decided to start writing a book, was it clear for you that it will be some fantasy or is it the story that brought the genre? Oh, it was most definitely, um, so for the Winter Duke, it was like a combo, I guess. Um, I wanted to write something originally that was a little bit more uh, thriller, but in a fantastic setting. I've always really loved fantasy. It's what I read growing up, and I've always really loved young adults. I read that growing up, and I, like, when I was a young adult, I felt that there were a lot of like a lot of things I wanted to see in young adult fiction that I didn't. So I vowed to write some of them. <laughs> and, uh, and that's what I'm working my way through now. But fantasy has always been my really great love. Right. And, um, and I have written a thriller, but I, I definitely see myself working mostly in the fantasy area of the bookstore. How many drafts did it take you to get to the final version of the Winter Duke? And did any of the story change as you modified the drafts? <laughs> yeah, so this was a very intense book to write. Um, so it was my sophomore novel. My debut, We Roll the Night, came out in uh, 2019. And I had to like turn in the final version of my first novel to my editor in, I think it was April 2018 and then I had to write a proposal and get it sent off and um, there had been some like contract issues payment issues before that so I would be, I'd been taking on loads and loads of jobs um, I did like a lot of writing like freelance writing at that time so I got totally burnt out I think I wrote like four or five novels in four or five months. <laughs> um, and I was editing my own novel and doing all this stuff. Got completely burnt out and I didn't get a proposal to, to my editor until I think it was like September. Uh, and the novel was finished and accepted for publication in May 2019. So over the course of like seven months, eight months, Uh, we were writing this, and it was a super intense process. Um, it changed loads. Um, like, certain parts were always the same. Like, Ekata was always uh, sort of thrust into the throne. Inkar was always around. She was always, like, the, the fun bride. Um, but the villains changed a lot. Like, I think for the first two or three drafts, I didn't actually know who the villains were. 
uh, sort of the main culprits behind the whole plot. Um, and I had to like layer that in as I went. Um, and the role of Ikata's primary antagonist, Sigis, it changed a lot as we went as well. Like sometimes he was much more pushy and forceful and like gross. And sometimes he was a little more reserved and, uh, and political, um, but it changed loads. I think we had five or six major drafts of this book that my editor and I went through. And it was very much a process where she would ask me tough questions and I wouldn't have the answers. So I changed loads of things and then start again. Um, but definitely so much changed during the writing process in a good way. And now that it's been a few years since you published a book, do you ever look back and think, oh, I wish I'd changed this, or I wish I'd changed that? There are definitely some things I wish I'd changed. Uh, I don't read too many reviews. I try to stay away from that. But sometimes one will slip in where someone makes a comment and I think like, yeah, I wish I had done that differently, actually. <laughs> um, but I think the best thing really is that occasionally... I will look back on it and maybe read a section of it and I'll think like, yeah, that was really good. Or someone will get in touch um, and talk about how much they enjoyed it. Uh, during the writing process, the publishing process, it can be so intense that you hate everything. Your book is terrible. You just want to be finished by the time it's finished and it can be hard to see the good in it. So it's actually nice to have some of that perspective and remember that there are some good things. Uh, the book is written in the first-person point of view. Was this a con... Like, did you plan to write it that way or did it come to you that way? It totally came to me that way. I actually usually prefer third-person for uh, writing my books, but... Ikata's voice was just very clear and very strong. And from the first, it absolutely had to be in first person from her point of view. Do you think it would have been a different story if it was written in a third person point of view? Yeah, definitely. Um, I might have been able to make the political plot more complicated, like, Third person might have made me, like, might have given me the freedom to explore other points of view, which I like to work with as well. But I think ultimately it would have been weaker as well because I couldn't go right into the heart of who Ikata was in the same way. Somehow she had a very distinctive voice that spoke to me. So Ikata is 16 and she's thrown right in the middle of court politics of which she has absolutely no interest. But the yeah. book politics was really well described. You know, there's a lot going on in the background. So do you enjoy writing about politics or court politics in general? I'm not sure. This is a good question. Hard to answer. Um, I find them oftentimes very confusing, which is why I took, I think, the approach that I did with Akata. She, I'm confused. She's confused. Uh, everybody's confused. And I liked... I really liked... Um, having a confused protagonist <laughs> in that way. Uh, of course, one really big novel of the past like decade or so uh, in fantasy is The Goblin Emperor, which is a similar idea. Um, 
this young man is suddenly thrown into the seat of the emperor when his extended family dies and he's been held back from court because they're all embarrassed by him. And then suddenly he has to navigate these very complicated politics. Um, and they're much more complicated than the politics of the Winter Duke. But it was fun to go through some of the minutiae of the politics, like accidentally offending people and trying to juggle names and treaties and all of this stuff. Um, that one, I had a lot of fun going through it through her perspective. Did you write the book with her at 16? Because you felt like she would respond differently to at 16 than she would at maybe at 25. Definitely. Idea. Yeah. Um, of course, yeah, she felt, she felt very 16 to me and like her ambitions are like going in a totally different direction and they're what a lot of 16 year olds ambitions are go off to a good school and go have fun, go and go to a totally new place. Um, and then she suddenly has to kind of pretend to be one of the adults that she doesn't even like, um, which at 25, I think, you know, you're in a very different place. You've hopefully had the experience of going out and trying some new things. A lot of us do run off and like go to college kind of far away from where we, where we grew up. And, um, and we're sort of more in a position where we think it's time for us to take control of the, like of our lives and some of the world around us. Whereas at 16, we're not quite in the same position. So uh, Iketa is kind of a child and her motherly figure, Heino, am I pronouncing that right? I call her Aino. Aino, okay. Mm -hmm. Aino, we learn, spoiler alert, uh, near the end of the book that she knew about the coup. Was it always the case? Did, a, did she always in all the version <laughs> knew and... Why was the reaction to this reveal so little, like a bit yeah. flat compared to other <laughs> things that happened in the book? Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. So it was always the idea that she would know, uh, that I know would know about the plot, would choose to do nothing, um, and she would like she would be interested in protecting Ikata, but not really care about the rest of her family. Um for Ikata, of course, it felt a little difficult, right, for her to decide what to do, because on the one hand, it's a big betrayal to, you know, for someone to kill or to be sort of complicit in a plot to kill your entire family. But on the other hand, of all of her family that Ikata knows, I know is closer than any of them. Uh, so... For her, it was definitely this emotional battle between almost like her love for Aino as a mother versus uh, sort of her feelings of duty to her family and uh, somet sometimes like the egotistical idea of like the fact that they're the royal family, so don't they deserve fealty, which I think ultimately Akata doesn't believe that they do uh, just because they are a royal like a royal family. One of the things I found really interesting about the book is it's actually only set over six days. And there's so much happening. And then you suddenly realize, actually, it's only set over six days. 
So yeah. was that part of your original plan as well to, to sort of have this, all these events happening over six days? Yeah, it was similar. I wanted it to be in a short span of time. Um, originally, I divided up the days in my first draft because I couldn't keep everything straight. <laughs> so it was a way to keep things like, this is what happens on day one, day two. It was an easy way for me and my editor to go back and forth and chat about like what was going where and to make sure that all the continuity was in place. And then after a couple of drafts, I took all of that out and then after a couple of more drafts, she said, why don't you put it back in and we'll keep it for the final version. Um, so we thought it made some good punctuation, but I also liked the, the pace of it, the way that it sort of uh, pushed on the pace of the novel. I was looking up bed sores and how to avoid them and all of these complications that come from, from lying prone for a long time. And a short illness helps to mitigate that. Um, but I'm really glad that it worked, that it worked well, at, at least for you guys. Um, I also, like, there were many things that I kind of wanted to emphasize uh, about like a short time span. Cause I feel like a lot of YA like can take place over a short amount of time, maybe not six days, but like a couple of months. And then you end up with like people falling irrevocably in love in the span of two weeks and they can't be separated from their, their soulmate who they've known for two weeks. And I kind of wanted to do something with that of having, maybe having people that, we're well matched for each other, but at the end they can say, "Actually, it's only been six days. Let's not stay married." <laughs> I definitely wanted to play around with some of the some of the tropes that come in from short term YA. So. I'm going back to the below because that below was definitely my favorite part, <laughs> um, and something struck with me. Do you know for how long, and was it the same in every version, for how long below, spoiler alert, were planning their coup? Because Ekata started receiving uh, messages from below pretty soon in her life. They, were they grooming her already at that time? Definitely. Like, that's one thing that I think... Um, is, is big about politics is that you can always use like you can use every relationship for something even if you are friends right with someone you can use your relationship with them and so every relationship I think in politics is um is expected to be reciprocal or you're expected to be able to trade on it at some point um and below um, like they kind of had a raw deal politically for a long time. They were trapped and at the mercy of these kings. So I like to think that the coup was like in process for a while. They were just waiting for uh, the pieces to fall into place, for the right politicians to be bought or threatened or interested in making something different happen. Uh, and then seizing that chance. So they're playing the long game. I like them as well, below. They're, in, they're an interesting group of people. That, that brings me to another question I have. Why 
tie their faith to only one family. I mean, it's it's a need needs situation, and you kind of limit your option if you made a deadlock with only one. Family. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so I like to think that yeah, they got into some bad deals, which can also happen quite often in the real world. They sort of got stuck. Uh, yeah, making bargains for magic and gold and uh, and um, equipment. Um, of course, their geographical location ties into that. We chatted a little bit about how this is the only place, right? They can't travel elsewhere and make deals with separate kings. Um, so their goods are sort of holstered in there. Um and honestly, part of it was probably due to the writing experience. Like I had, I had this idea in my head for many years about a kingdom above and a kingdom below. And it changed over time as to what, like what these kingdoms would be and how they interacted with each other. And uh, one grand author secret is sometimes you end up with holdovers that you can't necessarily explain but it's just like, it made sense maybe in a previous version more than it makes now. So I, in the, when I was reading the book, I sensed a strong connection between Ekata and Mer from the kingdom below. Yeah. So we have that connection and we have the connection between Ekata and Inkar, but she only knows Inkar for six days. And at one point I thought, I, I thought you might put Ekata with Mer. Did that ever cross your mind to think, okay, maybe there's a relationship there or was Inkar always the right to be um Inkar was always the main like the main love interest but definitely my editor and I talked a bit about this like Ikata always had this fascination with Mare um partially because she had this fascination with the culture that Mare was from and it's actually it's a little like Ikata's a little problematic in that way because she's not necessarily so interested in Mare for Mare's sake she's it's almost she almost fetishizes the kingdom below and is fascinated with Mare because of that um and so we wanted to sort of get that across that she has this fascination um but of course like it's a negative thing uh and one that she eventually gets challenged on um like, even though she has some respect for the kingdom below, and even though she doesn't just want to exploit them for their magic, she kind of just wants to be this eternal tourist. Um, and and that has its issues as well um, with how, like, she perceives them and how she might treat them as a result when she's above. She can't really represent their interests the same way. I had a question while I was reading. I remember the Grand Duke below uh, saying to Ekata that her father was kind of proud of her curiosity and her desire to go to uh, the university. Was that genuine or was it just a kind of way to manipulate and get on with Ekata to give her this... Yeah fatherly approval yeah 
Uh, I think I'll leave that one up to reader interpretation. No! (laughs) (laughs) Have you ever thought of writing a novel in the kingdom below? Uh, I always get interested in writing more. Um, It's a standalone novel, The Winter Duke. And, uh, And so nothing more is officially planned. But... I always like to keep my options open. Um, I can definitely see at least a short story set in such a kingdom. And have you thought of continuing Ekaka's and Inka's story at all? I have. Yeah, at first I wasn't thinking about it that much uh, because to me it was also always a standalone, one and done. And then a lot of people started asking me about it. Um, And then my sister, who is my my biggest fan... She sat down and brainstormed with me uh, for a couple of hours, and suddenly we had like the whole plot of a novel um, for a follow-up ready to go. And I don't know if that will ever come to pass, but it was certainly a fun thing to think about. And uh, if there's ever a way to get it to readers, I'd like to think I can try and make it happen. Now you're making me wonder uh, about the Inkar and maybe a prequel, like her struggle or not to become the super master of the <laughs> the super master of the Emerald Order and stuff. I think there, there's some stuff there that could be nice. Could this be something you'd be interesting to write? Yeah, I mean, I uh, I sort of toyed with the idea of a follow-up in Inkar's kingdom. Uh, I actually had a sort of idea where Inkar's father wanted her to come home and get married, right? Uh, ignoring the fact that she already had a girlfriend that she might want to marry. Um, but then I wrote a very similar story to that concept for an anthology called Silk and Steel, Uh, which is a whole anthology featuring like butch and femme women uh, who have fun fantasy stories and happily ever afters. Uh, So I definitely recommend the anthology as a whole. But Inkar, I feel like she's got more to say as well. You've written three full-length novels so far. Has your writing process changed over this time? Do you plot? Have you always plotted? Has anything changed in the way you outline your stories? Uh, I only wish things had changed, really. Um, So The Good Girls, my thriller, I actually wrote in collaboration with um, a a company called Glasstown Entertainment. So that looked a little bit different. We did a lot more planning before writing, and then the writing process was smoother and faster. And I really wish I could do something like that all the time. But no matter how hard I try to outline and plan, I don't do it very well. So I always end up doing the same thing, which is essentially writing about three times as many words as I actually need in the novel and doing lots and lots of rewrites. Um, I I do think that every book gets written a different way. Like I think particularly authors who haven't published yet um, might get intimidated by that but it's okay to change your process with every novel. I definitely have done that so far. And also with the novels I'm working on now, I've like, they're to- they've totally changed, um, like how I've worked on them depending on 
where my inspiration is coming from and how much time I have and when I can like get things done and what I want to focus on because of something I've learned in an earlier novel. Um, so my process right now is I try to plot out something. I usually have like general plot. I like to have what I call keystone scenes, which are the most important ones, the big, the big scenes of the novel. And uh, once I finished writing those, I usually have other scenes that have to set up those, those big scenes. And once I finished writing those, then I'll make an outline to try and see like, how does a novel, how is a novel actually supposed to look when you read it? And what have I missed? And, uh, and then I try to fill in the blanks from there. What's the hardest part, the beginning, the middle, or the end? Definitely the middle, right? And I think that's very normal for a lot of authors. Um, oftentimes, I know where I want my characters to be at the end and what the big final rousing fight scene is. And I, that means I can sort of tell where I want them to be at the beginning, right? Because they have to grow into this big fight scene. And then the middle is a big question mark. And certainly, like, what happened in Winter Duke was a lot of stuff that happens in the middle was originally part of the climax. And I think that was also common for many writers that I realized I don't actually have enough plot to make a novel. So I shoved everything up and wrote some new climax. You were talking about process. Do you need some specific things to write? Are you pen and paper? Do you need music? Do you need music, silence, a computer? Uh, or you can write anywhere, any, any ways? I can write anywhere. Um, the other day, actually, I got my first vaccine jab. And I was waiting for, you know, the side effects, any side effects to kick in in the center. And I just uh, started writing on the back of the pamphlet they gave me <laughs> to pass the time. Um, but I prefer the laptop. I also uh, prefer writing in the mornings to writing in the afternoons. I prefer writing with music. But now that I have a child, I write during her nap time. And I have always got one ear on the baby alarm. <laughs> so music is pretty a pretty rare occurrence. These so days. no writing on Baby Shark? No, not yet. <laughs> <laughs> um, I wanted to ask you about getting, like when you're writing, do you, how do you get feedback for your um, drafts? And do you use something like beta readers or do you have anyone else who reads the drafts for you and gives you some feedback? I have given up on the search for beta readers. Um, I, I love the idea of beta readers. I think they're a huge part of a process that I wish I had. But uh, to any writers out there who can't find your perfect beta reader, it's okay. Um, I would say my best ever reader is actually my husband. This is very unusual because family members don't necessarily like to um, rock the boat by telling you you wrote something terrible. But my husband values honesty above everything else. So he will tell me <laughs> if he thinks something doesn't work. So that's really great. He's also really good at picking apart story. My sister, my biggest fan, she makes a great cheerleading beta reader. And I think that's also important for a writer to have. So maybe not someone to rely on for critical feedback, 
but someone to remind you that you write well <laughs> is important. Once I got an agent, she's become a huge part of my process. Sometimes literary agents are more editorial and sometimes less. My agent's pretty editorial, so uh, I like to make a book as good as I can before sending it to her, but then she always gives back very strong, uh, very sharp feedback. And that's uh, even before you would send it to different publishers, so there's a step in yeah. between. Okay. That's right. So, for example, my debut novel, we finished that before we shopped it to publishers and sent it to publishers. And so she did two edits, two big edits on that with me before we sent it out. And then we edited it completely and totally again. Uh, for The Winter Duke, it was my second book. The editor, my editor was a big part of the process from the beginning. So she saw many versions from day one and she was like even more than a beta reader she was seeing totally unfinished stuff and helping to refine as we went but unless you already have a contract you don't usually have that luxury as an author does it get a little bit easier over time to get that kind of feedback that someone's brutally honest about your work for me the switch flipped I think when I became a good enough writer to actually get published, um, I think at least for me, when I am completely honest with myself, I can look at someone's feedback and see like, this is good for my book. This is not so good for my book. And of course, like when people give feedback, it's always coming through their idea of what your book should be. Uh, which does not always align with your idea of what your book should be. And so, like, it's sometimes, it's hard to set aside, like, the egotistical part of myself that wants to have written a grand masterpiece and wants everyone to have loved it. Um, but when I was able to flip that off, when I was able to say, I know I'm good enough, but I also know I need work, um, then it was really easy to understand, like, what people were saying when they made suggestions, sometimes their suggestions were wrong, but they were right that part of the novel didn't work or that there was an issue um, with some character or another. Um, so it's also being able to detach the criticism. Like sometimes someone is someone doesn't like a character and that's uh, important to think about, but then they want you to fix them in a way that doesn't make any sense in the novel, but you can still say this character needs to be changed to be less, like, to be less whatever, less shallow or less uh, contradictory or something like that. Um, was there, was it difficult to get an agent? How did you go for that? <laughs> yeah, that's also kind of a complicated question because it both, was and wasn't in a way for me. Um, so when when you want, if you want a literary agent as an author, um, you usually want one if you want to publish traditionally with like a big publishing house, if you want your book in the bookstores, things like that. Um, you have to jump through a lot of very specific hoops, I would say, to get an agent. And that's the difficult part. Like you have to learn how to write a query letter which basically like 
tells them what your book is about, entices them to read it, shows off a little bit about what your style is, and communicates the story. And those are very challenging. Like, you have to learn the nuances of how to write that, just like you have to learn how to, like, the nuances of writing a form of poetry or an essay or a novel. Uh, So a lot of people, like, there are all these groups devoted to helping people write good query letters. And it's definitely something you just, like, it's hard work. You just have to keep going. Um, I worked a lot on that. And I think I started querying about four months before I got my agent. Um, That's not really a long time. Like, some authors query for like two days and some are querying for years and years and some of them can never find an agent for the book they want so they have to so they write another one and they try again but like basically finding an agent you send them your query and if they like it they ask for more of your work and you send them more of your novel and if they like it they ask for more of your novel like eventually they might read the whole thing like it and if they think they can sell it to a publisher, that's when they will offer to represent you. Um, and the process is also very grueling emotionally because you have something you've worked, most people work for years, right, on a novel. My first novel, I worked for two and a half years on it. And so you've sunk a lot of time and usually you care so powerfully about what you've written um, that that is in many ways like the hardest rejection I'll ever receive has been rejections from agents, mostly because uh, they just say, no, thanks. And you can't, you like, you don't really get critical uh, analyses from agents. Um, and of course, that's perfectly fine. They don't have time when they're getting 100 queries a day to give a critical analysis of everyone. But it also makes it more difficult to know why. Why, um, why they didn't like it or what was wrong with it or, or anything. I don't know if that answered your question. Yeah. 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 <laughs> okay. Um, part two of the question, does your agent represent uh, other author that writes for the queer community? Loads. <laughs> I feel like it's almost her entire, uh, entire, entire spectrum. So um, she represents, for example, K.A. Dor, who wrote a trilogy called The Assassins of Khadid, which is like all three books are kind of standalone books centered around this city, Khadid, and all three books feature different queer relationships. They're all really beautifully done. So that's wonderful. Uh, she represents also Emily Tesh, who wrote uh, two novellas, Silver in the Wood and uh, Drowned Country, which are about um, a former god and uh, an Englishman. Um, a really nice MM relationship. It's it's very it's both sweet and terrifying. It's really good. They're really good novellas. And of course, novellas you can read them in an hour, and like you have a very satisfying reading experience in an evening. Um, and soon we'll have the second book. Um, by A.K. Larkwood, who writes FF, really epic fantasy. Uh, So she 
I don't even know how to describe her books. They're they're super epic. If you want to have these grand sweeping stories about hundreds of years old mages and snake goddesses and portals to other worlds and uh, this very cool FF romance, then you should check out The Unspoken Name because it's amazing. <laughs> well, we'll add that to the list. Yeah. <laughs> I'm glad to give you more and like there are more there are many more but those are the most recent like end up and coming novels that are coming out from my agent so if you had yeah. the freedom to write whatever you wanted what category might you choose next so <laughs> um my the book that I'm working on right now is in the adult category and it's also hopefully going to be a fantasy, kind of like a maybe a gas lamp fantasy. Um, I've nicknamed it Dead Girl Fight Club. And it's basically a cross between X-Men and Fight Club, except they're all girls and they're all dead. Uh, and hopefully, hopefully it will be sort of a cool way to examine as well, like, patriarchy and female agency and like women who uh use the banner of feminism to like use and abuse other women uh so i hope that will be exciting oh, that sounds really um, interesting <laughs> <laughs> if i can pull it off it will be really good <laughs> but i'm definitely not sure i can pull it off um uh i really like I said at the beginning, I really love writing fantasy. Uh, as far as romance goes, like as a young adult and when I started getting into being interested in writing my own novels, I sort of eschewed sort of classic romance, right? The male-female uh, romance. I also felt that so much YA was stuffed full of basically heteronormative romance. Um, and as a young adult, I wasn't terribly interested in that. Uh, so I like books that don't have any romance. Um, and I like to, like, sometimes a romance really speaks to me, like Ikata and Inkar's romance, and I just have to, to put it in. Um, but I like the idea of having the freedom to sort of put in what like add romance on a category of what speaks to me um so dead girl fight club i think will be a bit more about sisterhood uh also because like get sapphic romance and with a bunch of dead girls and it's just weird so <laughs> we might skip that one <laughs> um so you've talked talk about smashing the patriarchy and uh, woman power in uh, in a book which is absolutely great and i crave it uh but is it hard to write a good uh, male character who is not a complete tool or <laughs> a big dirtbag in that kind of work or is it like a necessity <laughs> can you write just good non-toxic male <laughs> you know i'm not sure i can <laughs> So the good girls, um, we definitely wanted to have a good non-toxic male, uh, especially because like there are two main relationships in the good girls. One of them is heterosexual and one of them is sapphic. Uh, so 
I definitely like for especially teen readers, I wanted to say like, this is what, this is one of the ways like a healthy relationship can look. Um, and certainly when I was a teen, like definitely like men were expected to act a certain way as well. Like toxic masculinity was definitely passed down from male man to man in, in generational terms. And it was very harmful to them. Um, and so in that sense, I wanted to like show off, like, what does that look like? But also what does it look like to have someone who's not part of that cycle? Um, definitely in my debut novel, there were no just okay men. Um, and I, it's also because like, depending on the society like that is created uh, in a fantasy world or that is reflected in the real world, uh, the society creates the people inside the society. And if it is creating and pushing its men to be a certain way, um, it's very much harder for them to break out of that cycle. So sometimes like people are complicated, even guys who mean well can exhibit sort of toxic, problematic behaviors. I think one good example of this is Moxie, which is a fun contemporary feminist story where like the love interest of the main character, he definitely has some, like he says some things that aren't cool. Um, and it's really great that he gets called out on these uncool things as well during the novel. And he's given the opportunity to grow a bit, but he's definitely shaped by the society of their small town uh, and like the pressures that, that he should think and act a certain way. What advice would you give to someone who is new to the writing journey? Hmm. <laughs> uh, so I would definitely say like, keep, keep going. Like it can sometimes be really lonely and really hard. And sometimes people don't really understand like how important it is to work on something, to, to write a novel and how much of a, a huge effort it is. Um, but keep going. You'll do it eventually. Like it can be really hard to get rejected a lot, but keep going. Um, find, find your people, like writing groups or online communities who will help you keep going. I think that like writing in the end, I like to say that story is learned, but style is earned. And if you keep going uh, and you're always open to like learning more about the process of storytelling and writing, you will get where you want to go. What's, what's the biggest difficult part uh, of writing a book for you? Probably whatever I'm doing right now. <laughs> um, <laughs> so no, I really like, I like editing in the sense that I like identifying problems but they're very, like, it can be very tough to implement them. Um, writing is amazing when it goes well, especially when you're in the first draft, and it's terrible when it doesn't go well, and you have to just force yourself through. Certainly, since I went on maternity leave, the hardest part about writing was finding the time to do it. Uh, I think this is a common refrain among parents, but my child never slept for the first six months <laughs> so definitely like I think for all writers it's really important to carve out a space 
where you can just do your thing. Um, I think thinking about writing, I don't have much of a problem with that because I think many for many people, like my brain's just on in the background all the time. And then I hear about something and I think that would make a good story or world or coat in a world. <laughs> and I'll just use that. And, you know, sometimes stories like kind of just put themselves together in my head enough for me to want to write them. And then I'm sitting with like 10 minutes a day to write and five novels to write. Now that you have a child, is writing queer story for children something that you think you might want to do? Yes, is the short answer. Um, I the have, long, one? <laughs> long one is I have no experience in writing like children's books. Um, and I have no idea what like the market is like for children's books. But like one thing that I've noticed is one of the most joyful points of my life right now is when I'm reading to my kid, even though she's nine months old and has no idea what I'm saying yet. Like she just thinks it's really fun to flip the pages of the board book. And if we give her a real book, she'll like rip all the pages out. So she can't have them, but there's just, I look forward to the day when we will read together so much. <laughs> and uh, I like, it also makes me think, I would love to write a story just for her. Beautiful. Yeah. <laughs> I just um, want to ask you about the cover of the Winter Duke. It's a really beautiful cover. Did you have a say in the cover design at all? A little bit. Uh, so my first, uh, we had the same cover designer for both my first and second books. And they were designed like to be able to look really nice together on a shelf. So for anyone who's a big cover nerd, um, they're like a matched set, guys. You should definitely get them both. Uh, but um, they originally, like, I got sent, like, a little sketch, a couple of sketches. And they said, which of these do you like best? Do you have any requests? And um, I actually, my first request was, like, wouldn't it be cool if you could have both above and below on the cover? Wouldn't it be amazing? And... Uh, Then um, they wrote back saying, like, we've talked to a lot of people and everybody's over the upside down sort of reversed kingdoms on, upside down on the covers of books. So we won't do it. But I, uh, I love it. We got, of course, we have a UK cover and a US cover. And oh, I didn't realize that. Okay. I don't know yeah. which one I'm seeing, though. So I've got my U.S. copyright here, so I can show off that one. This is the oh, US. Oh, yeah, okay, that's the one, yeah, that's the one I've been seeing online. I don't have a U.K. copy, but it's very fairy tale. It looks very much like a Russian fairy tale cover. I think it's really beautiful as well. Um, yeah. Do you, do, you, do you prefer one cover over the other? Is, are they different? No, they beautiful I, in their own yeah, way? I feel like they both have these different like wonderful, they both sort of emphasize different qualities, I feel, of the book. So this one's super icy. Uh, I feel like it emphasizes some of the dangers she's in. These ice roses, I love them so much. Um, the other one definitely emphasizes the fairy tale quality of, of the book, uh, which I also love, you know, and the interior design is different for both of them as well. And oh, okay. matches very nicely. 
just wanted to ask, uh, have there been any books that have inspired you in your writing process? Most definitely. Uh, so my favorite book of all time is Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell by Susanna Clark. Absolute classic. I don't think I'll ever write as well as Susanna Clark does, but, you know, it's it's like a nice thing to think about and aspire to. Um, I'd say that, like, Neil Gaiman, when I was young, like, got me back into fantasy as a young adult after a long period where I couldn't find anything I liked. Um, so in a way, I want to emulate him in that he's, like, always surprising and always pleasant, like, a pleasure to read. Um, Roshni Chakshi, she writes such gorgeous prose. Uh, definitely the first time I read any of her books, I thought, I <laughs> I want to be her. <laughs> um, really, I love her style, and I would love to, to do something like it. Um, she also writes really lush love stories, and I've always been convinced that I can't write a love story. So if I could do one like she does, that would be great. Hello, everyone. We're at the this or that section of this video. So, Claire, this or that? Cats or dogs? Dogs. Sorry, fake. <laughs> Indoor or hot door? Outdoor. Black or white? Black. Vanilla or chocolate? Chocolate. Spicy or mild? Spicy. Socks or blankets? Blankets. Hot or cold? Cold. Family, lover, or friendship? Family. Kids or teenager? Teenager. Books, movie, or theater? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay, books. <laughs> Reading or writing? Writing. Paper or computer? Paper. And that's it? Great. <laughs> Thank you very much for joining us. It wasn't too difficult? Some of those choices were so hard. <laughs> Claire, thank you anyway, so much for your time today. It was thank you for your time. Chatting to thank you, you guys. Yeah. It was really love to be, lovely to chat. Do you have any parting <laughs> thoughts for your readers? Um, just a big thank you. Like, I am totally shocked that people are still talking about this book uh, and sending me messages about how they enjoyed it. It's really touching. Um, you know, it came out like as the pandemic was setting in and uh, I kind of wrote it off as like something I'd never hear about again. But it's really surprised me with how much support it has received. And it's absolutely amazing. So that's, yeah, huge thank you to you guys and to everybody who talks about it and to people who are reading it and recommending it and enjoying it. <laughs>